Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. In her shining new book, Sexual Violation in Islamic Law, Substance, Evidence and Procedure, published by Cambridge University Press in 2015, Hina Azam, Assistant Professor of Middle Eastern Studies at the University of Texas at Austin, explores the diversity and complexity of pre-modern Muslim legal discourses on rape and sexual violation. The reader of this book is treated to a thorough and delightful analysis of the range of attitudes, assumptions and hermeneutical operations that mark the Muslim legal tradition on the question of sexual violation. Indeed, the most remarkable aspect of this book is the way it showcases the staggering range and diversity of approaches to defining and adjudicating rape that populate the Muslim legal tradition. Focusing primarily on the Maliki and Hanafi schools of law, Azam convincingly demonstrates that Muslim legal discourses on rape were animated and informed by competing ways of imagining broader categories such as sovereignty, agency, property and rights. In our conversation, we talked about problems of translation involved in using the category of rape in relation to pre-modern discursive archives, proprietary and theocentric approaches to sexual ethics in medieval Islam, the differences between the Maliki and the Hanafi school on defining and punishing male-female rape, and the implications and significance of the study to the contemporary legal landscape in Muslim societies. This meticulously researched and lucidly written book will be of much interest to students of Islam, Islamic law, gender and sexuality, and Muslim intellectual history, broadly speaking. It will also make a great contribution to upper-level undergraduate and graduate seminars on these topics. Here now is my conversation with Professor Hinaaz. Hello, Hina, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, Shirley. How are you? Uh, very good, Hina. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, as uh, I had mentioned in our correspondence, uh, such a meticulously researched and wonderful book, learned so much from it and about a very pressing and important topic and really provides us with a very multi-layered picture of uh, uh, pre-modern Muslim legal discourses and traditions on the question of sexual violation. So thank you so much for this excellent book, and I look forward to our conversation. Thank you so much for inviting me. So we have a tradition of new books in Islamic studies that our first question is always biographical. Uh, we are very interested in the stories of our individual authors. Uh, so Hina, how did you, could you share with us, how did you become a scholar of Islam and Muslim societies And then uh, how did you come to write this particular book? Sure. Um, In terms of deciding to, you know, become a scholar, pursue scholarship in Islamic studies, um, I would say that, you know, I had been really interested in issues. I was born and raised in a Muslim family. So, you know, the kind of commitment to, um, you know, Islamic practice and belief that was there, you know, from my childhood. But then I 
began to become sort of interested in and aware of issues pertaining to gender um, as I reached adolescence and um, began to notice that there were different expectations and rules and responsibilities for girls versus for boys. And um, one particular um, like really eye opening moment for me was when we went back to Pakistan, we used to go to Pakistan every couple of years and, you know, I'd, I'd always play, you know, on the streets with all the, with all the kids, you know, um, bat ball and, and so forth. And when I went, when I was 12, you know, my aunties kind of told me that I, I shouldn't go play outside anymore. And, you know, I was like, why? I, 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 I couldn't understand. And then gradually, of course, I began to understand. And then I didn't like what I was, <laughs> I was understanding. So, you know, that was kind of going on as I was an adolescent getting into my teenage years, you know, and, and going into college and feeling that these expectations were not really entirely fair or, or understandable. And then when I was in college, um, I was pursuing um, a double major in philosophy and journalism because at one point I wanted to go into journalism. Um, and I began to learn about, you know, all of the different ways that sexuality has been sort of constructed in the Islamic tradition, right? So, I mean, you know, that was my first encounter with ideas like polygamy and slave concubinage and temporary marriage in the Shi'i tradition. And all of these, you know, ideas really threw like major wrenches in the rather sort of Victorian model of Islamic sexuality that I had grown up learning about. And so, you know, through both of these sets of explorations on one hand of gender issues and on the other hand of sexuality issues, through both of them, I was still very committed to Islam as a set of beliefs and pious practices and ethical values. And so I, it was almost, it was quite natural, I would say, to sort of combine all of these interests and commitments and decide to enter into, um, you know, academia and pursue graduate studies. So that was sort of like the the general how I decided to enter into Islamic studies. In terms of this particular book, um, I went to Duke University to do my my graduate work. And while I was there taking coursework, um, I began to <clears throat> learn about the situation in Pakistan under Ziaul Haq's Hudud ordinances, where women were being imprisoned in high numbers um, for zina, you know, for fornication or adultery. Um, but then, you know, it when one sort of read more about the cases, it turned out that many of them had claimed that they had been raped. And so the injustice of, of imprisoning or punishing women for being raped was, was deserved. It was very upsetting. But then what was even more mind boggling to me was that this was being done in the name of Sharia, right? So, you know, I was sitting there thinking, could, could this, could this really, is this really what Islamic law says about, this situation. And so I decided to write a paper on that topic for my Islamic law course. That was with Dr. Vincent Cornell. I focused on Maliki fiqh. And then that paper became the kernel for my dissertation. And then of course that became my book. 
So Terrific. Uh, so let's begin with a uh, broad uh, question overall. Uh, could you briefly describe uh, for our uh, listeners uh, the major theme, uh, the goal, and the main argument that you tried to make in this project? What are you up, uh, up to and what are you trying to achieve in this project? Yeah. Um, yeah, those, that's a, that's a big, that's a big question, set of questions. Um, so, you know, for those of you uh, or your listeners who are not familiar, um, so in this book, I try to trace, I trace the construction of, um, Islamic rape law from the advent of the religion. So I look there, you know, to the Quran and the materials coming from the prophet and the companions and the successors. So, you know, sort of that formative period um, through the end of the 12th century CE, which is the sixth Islamic or Hijri century. Um, and I focus on the Maliki and Hanafi schools. Um, those were the first major schools to develop, schools of law to develop. And those two schools really set the parameters for later constructions of rape in other schools. So that's, you know, what my focus is on. And I show in the book that Maliki, the Malikis and the Hanafis had widely divergent viewpoints on how rape should be defined. And stemming from that definitional difference, they had very different viewpoints on how rape should then be proven in a court of law and how it should be punished. And, um, in terms of the of the of the difference between the Malikis and Hanafis, the heart of that difference lay in whether rape should be imagined or defined solely as a transgression against God, or whether it also has a human victim. So the classically the classical Hanafi position was or became that. Um, because the act of rape is constructed on the act of zina, and because zina in turn is presented in the Quran and the hadiths or the sunnah as a victimless crime, rape therefore has no human victim per se. The classical Hanifi, uh, Maliki position which was completely you know, different, was that rape is a composite crime. It is a transgression against God. It, it is a form, it is a type of zina, but it also constitutes a violation against a human victim. And they based their reasoning on the idea that sexuality has an economic value. So they said that when a man rapes a woman, he is actually stealing something from her. And this insight led them in a completely different direction from the Hanafis in matters of prosecution and penalization. A key part of my argument is that Islamic rape law did not, so that's like, that's the sort of description of the, the argument of the book as a whole, or the, the narrative of the book as a whole. A, a key part of my argument is that Islamic rape law did not in fact emerge directly or wholesale from the Quran and the sunnah or the prophetic legislation. Rather, it was developed over the course of generations by Muslim leaders, uh, leaders, uh, leaders and judges and scholars who were all products of their cultural and historical contexts. And therefore, Islamic rape law 
profoundly reflects themes and principles that preceded even the advent of Islam. So the entire first chapter of my book examines the ways in which sex crimes were constructed and prosecuted in the religious legal systems of the pre-Islamic Near East. Um, I look at the, the Bible, I look at rabbinic law, I look at um, Roman law, I look at canon law, um, I looked, look at pre-Islamic Arabia, the mores and customs there, I look to some degree over to Zoroastrian law. Um, so, you know, I'm trying to show this set of continuities with the pre-Islamic legal traditions. Um, and then in the second chapter, I look more specifically at those continuities in the early formative period of Islam. And throughout the book, I try to show that Islamic law and legal history has to be studied in conjunction with these larger legal historic developments. So that's, you know, kind of a critical argument. That's terrific. That provides us uh, with a very good uh, sense of the larger arc and the map of uh, the book. And we'll have occasion to talk about uh, each of these issues in more uh, more extensively in a moment. But before we get to that, uh, let's begin with the question of terminology. Uh, yeah, your book is titled Sexual Violation in Islamic Law. Uh, of course, much of what you're talking about in today's language, we could also uh, uh, categorize it as uh, uh, rape. And you talk at the beginning of your book, a very interesting discussion you have about some of the questions of translation. And you talk about the problems of translation involved in uh, uh, using the category of rape in relation to the materials that you examine and certain modern connotations that have been attached to this category. Could you share with us some of those terminological concerns and uh, questions of translation that you uh, dealt with and that you wrestled with as part of the framework and the work that you did in this book? Yeah, absolutely. Translation of terms was it, it was really a major issue. I mean, the problem, the basic problem is that, you know, we use the word rape, but the jurists, the Muslim jurists did not have a word. They didn't, they didn't use the same word. And our word rape comes from our English word rape comes from a different tradition. It comes from the Latin, um, the, the word raptus and that word in turn, has its own history. So raptus referred to a property crime, and then sort of, and then in English, it kind of, you know, um, has its own sort of trajectory. And by the time we use it today, we think primarily of rape as an act of, of, of violence, uh, an assault upon the rights of another person. But in the, um, in the in, in medieval Islamic discourse, and even going earlier to the late antique period before Islam, where my story starts, um, the very idea of rights, the rights of a person, the very categories of personhood, and and where sex fit into that, and where how property was conceived, they were, these were all entirely different. It was it was not even really agreed upon in most pre-Islamic legal systems that a woman really was a full person with autonomous ownership rights over her own body or sexuality. So, so how can we use, how could we use the, the word rape, which assumes autonomous rights holding individuals to refer to, or to capture the very different assumptions and values of cultures, you know, over a thousand years ago. 
Um, and so, yeah, I, I do use the word rape, but I, I am constantly qualifying it. And I, I tend to favor, um, I mean, even the word violence or sexual violence is a little bit problematic because an act was not necessarily problematic because it was violent. It was problematic because it was a violation of certain rights. And those rights were sometimes God's rights and not even necessarily the rights of the human beings involved. So it was definitely a kind of, it was, it was, it was a complicated situation. (laughs) Right. Right. Uh, So as you mentioned that you begin your narrative actually uh, with pre-Islamic legal and intellectual traditions. So what are some of the key features uh, in terms of approaches to sexual violation in uh, pre-Islamic legal traditions that you look at and how did they inform later uh, Islamic approaches to the same uh, question of uh, sexual violation. Okay, yeah, I probably like one of the the, the most prominent features of um, late antique or, or pre-Islamic um, legal discourses um, is the idea. This is sort of religious, legal, cultural. Is the idea of female sexuality as a type of capital, a form of property that can be contracted, exchanged, sold, utilized, you know, um, it's just like any other form, not exactly like, but similar to another form, any other form of capital or property. Um, and, you know, traded for some sort of financial consideration. So in the case of a woman's sexuality, particularly if she were a virgin, the true owner of her sexuality and therefore any sort of monetary rights that are associated with that were not, was uh, the the true owner was not her, but her father who had the right to dispose of it as he pleased by betrothing his daughter to a man of his choice. Um, And interestingly, we still, we still see these ideas in, in our language today in the Christianate West. So we still use language pertaining to a father giving away, you know, these are my air quotes, giving away his daughter in marriage, for example. But you don't, a father can't give away something that is not his. So even in our, you know, contemporary language, we still, see, you know, hear echoes of, these very old ways of thinking of sexuality and ownership and, and, and so forth. Um, so in any event, most late antique near Eastern legal traditions saw sexuality in this way. And so did Islam in its time. So for example, um, the Quran and the Sunnah both established the idea of a dower, uh, which is referred to as mahar or sadaq um, in order for, a marriage to be valid. So the idea is that a, um, a man in order to marry a woman has to give her a certain monetary uh, value, um, in exchange for access, exclusive sexual access to her. Um, similarly, the idea of the, the father being the, um, the owner, or at least the disposer, there are some shifts that go on then when we get into the Islamic texts, but the father is being sort of the disposer uh, or the rights holder um, 
to his daughter's sexuality. We see that in Islamic law, where the father is given, in, in all the schools, the exclusive right to betroth his minor virgin daughter to a man of his choice. Um, while the schools of law differ over, you know, at what point does she become, does a, does a woman become independent of her father's authority? I mean, there's differences about that, but they all do agree that at least initially, um, until she reaches a certain milestone, either she becomes an adult or she has been married and then divorced from her first husband or something. Um, he has that sort of right. So we see this sort of um, similar approach in the Islamic, in Islamic jurisprudence that we see from, from the pre-Islamic period. And another um, way in which we see that continuity um, is that because female sexuality is conceived as a form of property in the pre-Islamic period, I'll talk about the pre-Islamic period first. Because female sexuality is seen as a form of property, a man who raped a woman was really seen as usurping the property of her father. And so he needed to compensate the father for the loss or depreciation of that property in the event of rape. Um, This becomes the guiding insight then for Maliki rape law. Um, for their doctrine that rape is a compensatable crime, i.e. it's a tort. In Maliki and then in Shafi and also Hanbali law, and in also one opinion in, in Jafari law, a man who rapes a woman has to compensate her for the usurpation of that sexual property. Um, so this is probably the most prominent um, feature uh of the approach to sexual violence in pre-Islamic law and then in Islamic law. So you've already touched on this uh, uh, a few moments ago, but uh, two of the categories that are central uh, to the larger architecture of your project are what you call proprietary and then theocentric approaches to sexual ethics and the implications of those two approaches. So could you explain the distinction, first of all, for readers, what are these two approaches? What is the difference between these two approaches and in what ways is the relationship and the tensions between these categories uh, significant to early Muslim legal discourses on the question of uh, sexual violation? Yeah, sure. Um, so basically, I'm going to describe theocentric and then proprietary sexual ethics as sort of two ideal types, you know, at two ends of a spectrum. Um, and uh, I would just ask the the listeners to keep in mind that these are ideal types, that no system, at least that I have studied or described, um, was purely theocentric in its sexual ethics or purely proprietary in its sexual ethics. Um, most of the, the religious legal systems kind of were a hybrid of these two approaches with different degrees of emphasis on one or the other. So by... Theocentric sexual ethics, what I mean is that is a system um, in which sex is part of a sacred or moral domain um, that is set by God, in which the only currency is moral in nature, is virtue or sin. So, you know, a sex, a sexual act can be seen as being 
permissible. It could be seen as being prohibited. It can be seen as being uh, recommended or so forth. But there's no sort of um, the, the, the contract is purely between the individual and God. And the rules and regulations pertaining to sexual conduct are established um, purely by God and the individual's adherence to or transgression to those rules impacts only them and that relationship with, with God. Um, by proprietary sexual ethics, on the other hand, uh, I mean a system in which sex and sexual relations are socioeconomic in nature and concern interhuman negotiations of rights and benefits. Um, and so in a proprietary sort of vision, um, sexual and monetary exchange work um, or are, are related to one another in a sort of continuum such that one is the currency for the other. Um, so the idea of, of exchanging, for example, sexual access to um, one's wife um, for, you know, a, a monetary um, benefit um, you know, makes sense. So what I try to show in the book is that both Hanafi and Maliki, and, and really the basis of this is found in, in the scriptural sources, um, that both Hanafi and Maliki discourse um, on rape specifically um, contain elements of theocentric kind of um, the theocentric approach and also the proprietary approach, but that they are different in the emphasis that they give to one over the other. So um, the classical Hanafi um, fiqh on this, on this, um, on this point, um, while it does incorporate proprietary principles, such as the idea that, one needs to have a dower, um, a, a husband or a groom needs to pay a certain dower in order to have a valid marriage. There has to be that that monetary exchange for sexual access. Um, the Hanafis tended strongly in the direction of theocentrism in sexual matters. Classical Maliki fiqh, on the other hand, while it was based in theocentric principles to some degree, such as the acceptance of the definition of zina as purely a sin against God. Um, uh, classical Maliki fiqh tended strongly or more strongly towards uh, proprietary sexual ethics. And so basically the idea of theocentric and pro pro proprietary sexual ethics sort of, um, they're sort of heuristics and they help us to sort of um, understand the types of decisions and trade-offs that the jurists were making as they thought through, um, you know, the rights and, and obligations and so forth that kind of um, were involved in, in a crime like rape. So let's continue this uh, line of thread of fascinating uh, discussion on the, the uh, differences between the Hanafi and the Maliki schools uh, on this question. So what were some of the key points of divergence as you discussed them in the book on uh, the definition and punishment of uh, male-female uh, rape between the Hanafi and the Maliki uh, scholars? And 
uh, and you already have begun to touch on this, but how are these divergences connected to a different ways of imagining such questions as rights, property, marriage, and indeed sexuality, uh, broadly speaking? Sure. So um, I will start with sort of talking about substantive issues, and I'll move into punishment and evidence and procedure. So by substantive issues, I mean definitional, definitional issues. Um, so the question between or the, the disagreement between the Hanafis and the Malikis um, concerned whether or not um, rape is a violation of God's rights alone, or is it also a violation of human or interpersonal rights, i.e., is there a victim? Um, and the Hanafis, um, in their sort of more theocentric conception, um, argued that rape is only a violation of God's rights. It is only a form of zina. It is, is, it is only a head crime. Um, for those of your readers, or, I mean, uh, listeners who are familiar with the idea, of, uh, the concept of head um, is sort of complex, but um, in Islamic law, the idea is that the head crimes were violations against the divine rights or God's rights. So um, for the Hanafis, rape was really just a coercive form of the head crime of zina. And they, that's how they referred to it in the sources. They referred to it as coercive zina or zina by coercion, al-istikra ala zina. Um, the Malikis, on the other hand, defined rape as a composite or hybrid crime. And they actually had a different term for it. They referred to it as sexual usurpation or um, ikhtisab um, or rasp. So rasp means usurpation, and they tended to use ikhtisab, which is a sexual form of usurpation. So for the Malikis, they didn't deny that rape is a form of zina or a coercive form of zina, but they said it's also the usurpation of sexual property. So that is the the definitional difference between the Hanafi and the Maliki approach. And then, um, stemming from that, we see a difference between them over whether or not, um, or, or over how the 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 act should be punished. So the Hanafis, because they defined rape as only zina, a coercive form of zina, the only available punishment for an act of rape was the zina punishment, which is flogging or stoning. The Malikis, on the other hand, said, sure, if, if a case meets the evidential criteria for zina, then you can apply the zina punishment of flogging or stoning. But they also indicated a monetary compensation, uh, in other words, a, 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 civil, a civil compensation to the victim if she could meet the evidentiary criteria for rasp. And that um, the amount of that compensation was the amount of her dower. They said that 
a man, in order to have access to her sexuality in a legal way, would need to pay her her dower amount. And so a man who rapes her has basically gone and taken what he should have paid for. And so he should retroactively compensate her in the amount of her dower. And the dower, of course, was based on her status, her, her social status and so forth. Now, that, so we've gone through substance and punishment. Now I want to talk a little bit about evidence. Um, the Hanafi Zina only approach meant that the only evidence that could be utilized to establish a, the, uh, the crime of rape was or were the evidences that were permissible in a Zina case. So this meant that only confession by the assailant or the eyewitness testimony of four upright male witnesses could establish the crime. Um, and so for all intents and purposes, it became, it was essentially impossible in the Hanafi system, in the Hanafi evidentiary system to establish a, a, an act of rape. The Malikis, and this is becomes, this becomes the real, the real problem then with, with the, with the Hanafi approach, the Maliki approach because they defined rape as zina plus ras, um, they were not limited to only meeting the zina standards of confession or four upright male eyewitnesses who testify um, to the act of zina. They also were able to accept the lower evidentiary standards for ras. So rasp or usurpation did not require four eyewitnesses. It only required two. It did not require only male eyewitnesses. It also accepted female eyewitnesses. And most importantly for a crime like rape, um, the Malikis accepted circumstantial evidence. So if a woman could not act, did not have any, you know, witnesses to the actual act, but if people say, you know, could, could say, well, you know, she went missing for some days or, you know, last she was seen with, you know, such and such a man or, you know, she, she emerged from a building and went to the police or went to, you know, her family and her, her, her clothes were torn or, or something like that. All of these things could be used as evidence in a rusp case. And so um, this is a huge difference. This makes a huge difference for a witness in terms of her, of her ability to actually prove that she was, was she, that she was violated. And then the last part um, of any prosecution um, is procedure, right? What are the procedures for, for a case to proceed um, and the beginning of the proceed of a, of any sort of a suit is a claim. The Hanafis, because they defined rape as only a form of coercive zina, excluded the possibility of a victim. And so in the Hanafi architecture, there's no possibility for a raped woman 
to actually bring an accusation or launch a suit. There, the most that a woman can do in a situation like that is prove that she did not consent to zina in the event that she later on shows pregnancy. But the Maliki approach, because it included this idea of rust or usurpation, um, basically defined um, or, or kind of um, created a space for a victim to make a claim. And so in the Maliki approach, although she could not, she could not launch a suit, uh, a Zina suit, she could launch a suit um, or an accusation of sexual violence, sexual usurpation or sexual violation. And she could bring all the types of evidences that I listed above to support her claim and seek compensation. So the, the sort of nutshell is that the differences between the Hanafis and Malikis, which begin as sort of a definitional difference, has, has major ramifications for what happens then in an actual court case. So one of the most fascinating aspects of your book is precisely that, that you show ways in which these uh, uh, substantive questions over and differences over defining uh, rape had uh, some very significant implications for how these kinds of cases were adjudicated uh, in the court of law in the classical period. So uh, could you uh, continue this line of uh, thinking in sharing with us some of these relationships between uh, differences of defining rape and then how these cases were adjudicated in the court of law? And again, what notions of evidence and procedure again drove Hanafi and Maliki operations. You've already touched on quite a bit of this, uh, but could you continue that line of thought in terms of connecting the theory with the practice, so to say? Yeah, um, actually, that is something that we we don't have a lot of knowledge about for the time period that I focus on. Um, we don't really have um, court records. I mean, we start seeing court records. The Ottomans keep excellent court records, but my work does not go all the way through to that period. Um, and so um, even if one looks at, you know, fatwa collections, um, fatwa collections are not the same as court cases. They still remain abstract and ideal. Um, they kind of explain what the theoretical application of the law would be in a particular situation, but they don't tell you what actually occurred in, in actual cases. So, you know, it's not really possible. I mean, that's one of the sort of limitations of juristic texts is that they don't tell you, you know, how these laws were actually applied in, in real cases. Um, so. Right. Uh, but clearly the, the notions of evidence and procedure that you've so uh, nicely detailed here and you also do in the book uh, would have had some uh, significant implications for how these kinds of cases would have been uh, engaged with uh, in the court of law also. So that's a very fascinating connection to be further explored. Yeah. Uh, so let's, uh, if, with your permission, uh, shift gears a bit to the contemporary moment, although this book primarily focuses on the pre-modern uh, Islamic legal uh, traditions and discourses, but clearly, as you also discuss towards the end of your book, uh, the, the question of uh, rape and sexual violation, of course, is very significant and 
often uh, contested and debated uh, in uh, strident ways even today. So uh, sort of a two-part question. Uh, one, how do you think the story that you tell uh, in your book, uh, how have they informed the laws and attitudes towards rape and sexual violation in contemporary Muslim societies? And secondly, what are some of the major problems in the contemporary Muslim legal landscape that you find in relation to questions of sexual violation and how could uh, perhaps the conclusions that you draw uh, in your book or that you that you cement in your book um, and the findings that you that you attain, uh, how could they be useful in addressing some of these uh, problems and uh, contradictions and aporias that we find uh, today? So just to repeat, Charlie, the first question, the second question was about problems today. Right. Uh, and, and how do you think the... Uh, the narrative that you tell could inform uh, the contemporary situation and uh, uh, help us think uh, in more nuanced ways about the contemporary legal landscape and some of the problems that we find. And what was the first question? Uh, How the narrative that you tell in uh, in your book, how have they informed the attitudes and the laws that we find today? Oh, I see. Okay. That's right. Okay. Um, I mean, I think that, um, and this is a good question because it will give me a chance to talk a little bit about um, one of some of the larger goals of the book. Um, I mean, if we look at and the situation for um, victims of sex crimes, uh, particularly women um, and girls in the Muslim world today is, um, is, is really terrible. Um, just a survey of sort of the success um, of um, rape suits, um, or rather than the non-success of rape suits, you know, the, 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 the numbers, you know, even if they're sort of um, just estimates, you know, the numbers of, um, you know, uh, violations, uh, sexual violations of women and girls in Muslim societies um, is, quite high and it's very difficult for um for victims to successfully um have achieve some sort of um um remedies achieve remedies or 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 um you know punishments for their assailants and i think that this is um i mean part of it is is that we see the Hanafi, the basic sort of Hanafi approach applied widely in much of the Muslim world today. And I think it's because um, the Hanafi approach is a little easier to kind of get to when one takes a more sort of Salafi approach. And what I mean by a Salafi approach in this context is that if one were to simply look at what the Quran says and what the Hadiths say, then one would not arrive at the idea of ras or circumstantial evidence, right? One would sort of say, okay, well, you know, um, there's zina and there's coercive zina and there's the punishments for zina, which are flogging and, and uh, stoning. And then there are certain you know, evidences that are permissible. And if you can't meet those evidences, evidences, well then, you know, tough luck. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an approach that is a little bit more accessible, um, from a purely scriptural perspective. And in the modern period, we see that many sort of efforts towards Islamizing, 
um, the law or sort of implementing Sharia tend to be somewhat simplistic in their approaches to these questions of, you know, how to uh, understand Sharia and how to understand the Quran and how to understand the Sunnah. And so the wonderful nuance that we find in um, Maliki jurisprudence is really lost, I would say, to a great extent. Interestingly enough, even in, even in, you know, Maliki societies, like some of the cases that we hear, for, you know, that have at the news um, that come out of Nigeria and so forth, these are Maliki, you know, parts of the world. Um, and something I allude to, alluded to earlier in this interview is that the Maliki approach really dominates the Hanafi approach in the classical period. Um, I think things really changed with the Ottoman Empire. But, um, you know, if we look at the Shafi and Hanbali and even the Jafari approaches, they are more in line with the Maliki approach on the matter of rape than they are with the Hanafi approach. So arguably, the um, contemporary situation could be much more fair to women by um, sort of adopting Maliki approaches, but in, but 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 that's not what we actually see happening. Um, and then in the places that are dominated by Hanafi law, if you look at, for example, South Asia, they borrow those aspects of Hanafi law, of Maliki law, that are most detrimental to women. If you remember, I said what it, one of the things that got me started on this particular topic in graduate school was finding out that women who had been raped in Pakistan under Zia and who ended up pregnant would end up imprisoned. And the irony of this is that in Hanafi law, pregnancy in an unmarried woman is not acceptable evidence of zina. That's a Maliki principle. So one has to ask, what in the world is a Maliki fiqh principle doing in, you know, being implemented in a Hanafi society. There again, I think the big problem is a sort of a very sort of uh, simplistic scripturalist approach. Well, we see this hadith in which the prophet did such and such. So let's just take that and, and implement it. But in fact, and this is one of the larger goals of the book that I'm trying to show is that classical Islamic jurisprudence was not that simple. It was very sophisticated. It was incredibly subtle. It was internally coherent. You know, even if one does not agree with some of the conclusions and the doctrines that were put in place by the classical jurists, they make sense within you know, those, you don't have sort of a hodgepodge. It's not an ad hoc or arbitrary or unintelligent or irrational system. It's a very, you know, kind of it's it's rational almost to the point of being, you know, overly rational in some ways. Um, and so, I think that in the modern period, we would benefit from having a more um, thorough understanding of how classical jurisprudence worked and not sort of feel that, well, you know, Islamic law is just simple and the simpler it is, the better it is because the simpler it is oftentimes the more harmful, you know, it becomes, we have to be able to see 
nuance. Um, so, uh, so Hina, uh, as we are approaching uh, the end of our time uh, here, uh, could you share with us uh, the kinds of uh, projects or things that you're working on these days and what we could expect to read from you and uh, learn from you uh, in the coming uh, months and uh, few years? Yeah, um, I have been um, interested in a, a couple idea, a couple of ideas for a while that I'm um, kind of turning my attention to now. One is the um, the question of interreligious marriage. Um, you know, I would really like to do a um, sort of a comprehensive study of. Um, marriage law in relation to religious identity in the, or communal affiliation in, you know, um, in classical jurisprudence in the same way that I've done for rape. Um, I think that it's a very pressing um, topic in, in the contemporary period, particularly as we have, um, you know, very large Muslim minorities living in um, the West and so forth, where, you know, it's difficult for women, Muslim women to get married. Um, That's one topic. And I've also um, been really uh, thinking about the, um, the issue of violence and sort of how violence is, um, is presented in the Quran. Um, Of course, it's very difficult in the, present circumstances for uh, a scholar of Islam or Islamic law or Islamic studies not to be distressed by the, um, by the way that, you know, certain groups are um, attempting to implement their version of Islam, um, you know, and in ways in which they are so, um, so violent and so harmful to, to others. So, those are some of the things that I've been sort of thinking about and working on these days. So hopefully there'll be something good coming out of all this. Sexual Violation in Islamic Law, Substance, Evidence and Procedure by Professor Hina Azm, uh, published by Cambridge University Press in 2015. Uh, thank you so much, Hina, for your time and for this really wonderful book. It really is uh, intellectual and legal history at its best uh, in the way in which you combine a close reading of uh, some very complicated texts with the larger contextual picture and the narrative that you present uh, is really quite uh, masterful and astounding. So a pleasure reading your book and it was really also a pleasure uh, talking to you about it. I'm sure our listeners also really benefited uh, from this conversation and from your insight. So thank you very much. Thank you so much, Sherali. So this was my conversation with Professor Hina Azam about her brilliant new book, Sexual Violation in Islamic Law, Substance, Evidence and Procedure. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Please also join us next time for another fresh episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care and be well. And thank you for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.